Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome to the show, friends. This is Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang, and I'm your guest host, Max Burns, sitting in for John while he soaks up those West Coast rays in idyllic California. It's a pleasure to spend the next three hours with you. And let me tell you right up front, we have an amazing show for you. And can you believe it's already the end of another month? We are now just 53 days away from the start of Donald Trump's criminal trial in Georgia. And Governor Brian Kemp delivered some more bad news for Trump and his co-defendants earlier today. We'll get into that and a bunch more in just a minute. Now, folks, I am pleased to report that our executive producer, Chris Hossel, survived Hurricane Adalia with his roof intact. He is back with us tonight from a much calmer South Carolina. Thea Harper, of course, joins us producing the show from Brooklyn. And I'm coming to you from Manhattan on another gorgeous night. We also have some amazing guests joining us tonight who you know and love. Coming up this hour, we have esteemed writer, thinker, and commentator David Rothkoff, whose list of accomplishments and honors could fill its own hour. We're going to be talking about all the crazy news breaking today, as well as David's latest piece for The Daily Beast, where he argues that America still faces real threats, but our country is actually doing a lot better than the doomsayers want you to think. I also want to take a second to thank all of you who called in this week at 866-977-4748 to offer your thoughts, your kind words, and even your heated debates about the Second Amendment. The great Mr. Fugelsang was absolutely right. Tell me everything has the best guests in radio, and I'm going to try and get to every single one of your calls tonight, so come and share what's on your mind. So we have some big milestones today, kicking off with the fact that in 1535, Pope Paul III booted the English King Henry VIII out of the Catholic Church for getting an illegal divorce. That worked out just fine for old Henry, who went ahead and started his own church, which eventually became the Anglican Church, and kicked off a wave of anti-Catholic fervor in England that resulted in a civil war, a brief six-year flirtation with an English republic, some more war, and then right back to kings again. The United States, of course, avoided all of that by just letting people get divorced, Yet another reason why America is number one. And a news that could resonate with the Georgia Republicans who have been calling for civil war if Donald Trump is convicted, today marked the start of William Tecumseh Sherman's 1864 uh, assault on Atlanta. That offensive ultimately led to the Confederacy abandoning the city and ceding Atlanta to the Union. President Lincoln went on to use the capture of Atlanta as a major part of his 1864 re-election campaign, which he won in a landslide, once again proving that while Georgia conservatives have mighty big mouths, they run away like cowards when the shooting actually starts. 
Today's pro-Civil War MAGA extremists ought to keep that in mind when they're thinking about threatening the Republic. The notorious Roman Emperor Caligula was born this day in year 12. Happy birthday, I guess. And Twitter user Garth Gersten actually reminds me that we use the Gregorian calendar now, so that's wrong. But you know what? I choose not to acknowledge that because that would involve me doing math on a Thursday, and I refuse to do that. Now, contrary to a bunch of negative propaganda about Caligula, he wasn't actually insane. And yeah, we're, I'm going to defend Caligula here. He was just a jerk who delighted in humiliating senators and generally ignored everybody's advice, which, I don't know, sounds like somebody we might know. Caligula, probably best known for making his horse a consul, which his critics took as a sign of insanity. But in reality, he was actually making something of a political joke. Because up till that point, he'd been served by some of the worst consuls in the history of the empire. And Caligula had, quite frankly, had enough of it. And in a big speech, he dragged the Senate for how useless they were, how much they bowed to him, how he never got good advice, how they were so eager to please. And he claimed a horse would make just as good a consul as any one of them. And then to really rub salt in the wound, he forced the Senate to conduct a mock ceremony where his horse, Incitatus, was given full consular honors. Now, having your uselessness rubbed in your face like that really doesn't win you friends then or now. So you can see why nobody really wept when he was assassinated in 41. Oh, yeah. He also slept with a bunch of the senator's wives. So still honestly feels pretty familiar. Now, speaking of violence, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud was born today in 1985. MDS, best known for ordering the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi for writing critically about the Saudi government. He's also one of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner's besties. So draw your own conclusions there. All right. You didn't come for a history lesson. Let's jump into the headlines. We had a hugely consequential day in Washington, D.C. today as Proud Boys leader Joe Biggs was sentenced to 17 years behind bars for his involvement in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That makes Biggs the second longest prison sentence out of the hundreds of domestic terrorists who've been convicted. And prosecutors had initially sought 33 years. They ended up with a little over half that. The government characterized Biggs as being, quote, the tip of the spear for the violent mob. And he played a leading role in organizing that attack in the days leading up to January 6th. He organized a group called the Ministry of Self-Defense. Now, Biggs wasn't such a tough guy in court today. He broke down crying during his statement to the judge, claiming he wasn't a terrorist. He was just a guy seduced by the crowd. And Biggs said he only broke into the Capitol four times because he was curious what was in there. And that argument may be a tad more convincing if there wasn't reams of evidence showing he'd been organizing this attack for weeks. Now, Biggs was apparently so seduced by the January 6th crowd that he was still seduced weeks later when he sat down for a podcast where he celebrated the attack, cheered on the people who did it, called his actions a warning shot to the government, and said they'd do it again. Well, now you're in jail, bud. You can cry there. Zachary Rell was also sentenced today, and this guy's another real winner. He's the guy who helped beat down police officers along with other rioters, sprayed a cop in the face with mace, all of which was caught on camera, which made this easy. In social media posts, he called the January 6th attack a great and historic day, and he told his mother how proud he was to have played a part in attacking the Capitol. Rell also broke down crying when the judge told him he'd be going away for 15 years. And I'll tell you, these guys are real tough, 
until they face the consequences of their own actions. Rell begged the judge for leniency, and he said, I want to get this right, quote, I'm done with politics. I'm done peddling lies for people that don't care about me. Yeah, well, plenty of time to think about that when you're in federal lockup. Oh, well, two fewer votes for Donald Trump next year, I guess. Now, I want to take a pause right here. I want to jump into a call. Let's uh, let's chat with Mitch. Mitch has some thoughts on polarization and gerrymandering across the country, and I think I'm going to be interested. How are you, Mitch? Hey, hi, Max. Hey, thanks for picking my call. I appreciate it. The, um, of course, gerrymandering, that's a, that's a big one here in Ohio. It's, you know, a lot of scrutiny here and a yep. lot of playing puzzle with the state as far as the Republicans uh, uh, getting their way. Uh, making these odd-looking uh, puzzles of, 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 you know, districts. You know, going back in, um, you know, the, the, actually, here, this is a letter that was sent in the, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer today, uh, where the woman asked, uh, congressional districts should be based off solely on population, not politics. True? I think that's, I, it, it's, what a bizarre, like, there is no separation of the two. I mean, we have... Districts that are very clearly drawn for this purpose. I think when people say that, what they're saying is districts should be drawn in a way that fits my politics, mm. which is what we've seen with Ohio Republicans, certainly. Yeah, they uh, well, the way I understand it, you know, it's the, the population, I guess, that uh, that would determines if it's so be it, so be it that if it's a, a democratically populated area or, or Republican. But it, it, I just it doesn't make any sense to me as far as. Uh, how it ends up in, you know, in, in Columbus, as far as the uh, the spread of the uh, of the parties, as, as far as uh, who has the heavier hand, one or one or the other, because actually, if you look at the polls, uh, Max, this country is really in the middle. I mean, as far as the independent vote, I think is the strongest of, of, of you know, really the independent vote. I think has the has the heaviest heaviest you know, the most say in the polls. And, of course, the independent vote actually leans you know, more Democrat, true, than, than the Republican as far as the independent vote. They, uh, yeah, absolutely. They, they, I think they, they're they a quiet voice, but I think they have uh, they have the larger um, count. I really do. Uh, I don't know. I just, uh, this whole gerrymandering thing has really got us, you know, it, it's in a quandary here. It really is. And it's, it's got to be, how, you know, how can we make it fair? We have to make it fair. Why... We get, you know, we get these people in there, in there that, uh, you know, they, they play with it and they, they toy with this whole map. And, you know, it, I don't, it's just uh, there's got to be a and, way to. Uh, and Ohio has a real problem with this. Ohio has been to the Supreme Court and back multiple times trying to get their districts right. What we've seen from from history, from recent history, is when people say things like just count the people, they're normally hiding something else. When in Kentucky, they said just count the people, what they ended up doing was splitting a Democratic city into three different parts that were in three different districts, which suddenly turned a strong Democratic district into three mostly strong Republican districts. They're looking for ways to dilute the votes of people. And the Supreme Court has said, until they struck down the Voting Rights Act, that these districts must also take into account uh, contiguous areas like cities, they need to take account of demographic groups that deserve representation. And in some cases, we have red states just straight up ignoring court orders. In Georgia, there was uh, an order for an additional black majority district to be drawn. The legislature just said no. They said, force us to do it. Bring the army down. We're not going to draw another district to help the Democrats. 
And I mean, it is so staggeringly anti-democratic that it's hard to think up. They're beyond thinking up excuses. They're just straight up refusing to honor the law at this point. Right. It's just, uh, yeah, they, uh, they 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 follow their marching orders from, uh, you know, from from these people. And, and uh, it, it just it, it, it just, uh, you know, it, it's totally uh, unfair. The, the other thing was, you know, I, I've been voting since 1972, Max, and. You know, there was polarization then, you know, as far as the Republicans and Democrats, but uh, it's grown even wider. I mean, since then, I mean, there was, you know, of course, the, the war, and, you know, Vietnam War and, you know, and, and civil rights and, and you know, everything going on back in the late 60s, early 70s. But other uh, actors had, had, a, had, a, had, a, had kind of a graph showing Democrats and Republicans as far as their, uh, you know, their, their leanings. You know, Democrats, of course, edged liberal. And Republicans, of course, are conservative. But over the years, since 1971, that the Republicans, Democrats, pretty much stayed true. The line is almost almost the same now as it was in '71. Republicans have, you know, 25 percent, 3 percent, gone deeper. It's in their uh, conservative ideology. It's amaz- It's really amazing how how they have actually you know, uh, gone away from the middle and more toward the extreme as far as conservatism, whereas the Democrats... It really is. Much, yeah, they've really stayed true I, to their uh, voice. I, 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 and I'm amazing. glad you mentioned that point, because that's the point a lot of media leaves out, is that, well, the, the nation has become much more polarized. If you look at the chart, it is not even. Democrats no. have, over time, become slightly more progressive, but the line for the right is is shocking. It vaults sharply to the right, I mean, the Republicans today are so far more conservative than they've ever been that even Republicans 30 years ago would not qualify for the party that exists today. Those people would be independent voters or moderate Democrats by the standards of today. And it really shows you just how quickly this catering to extreme voices, extreme interest groups, the gun lobby, and making all of your talking points from these very elite sources has driven Republicans off a partisan cliff. And there's no coming back. I mean, it's only accelerating now. Yeah, you're so true. Anyway, it, it was, I'm sorry, it was a Pew Research Center that put this out a few weeks ago. And just, just to look at this chart, just, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing. Like I say, I, 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 can, I can relate to it because I, you know, like I, I got the first vote in 72. And I, I just, to see every four years how it just drifted, how they just drifted more and more to the right, it's just, uh, it's just uh, totally amazing. But uh, I, I thank you, Max. I, I really appreciate your knowledge and, and your uh, kindness. I really do. Thank you very much. I appreciate your call. Thanks so much, Mitch. Now, we're going to take a couple minutes here before our break, but I do want to dive in a little bit before we jump into the other big story today. Uh, It's been a rainy night in Georgia for Donald Trump and his buffoons because Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, officially offered his decision about all those Republican calls to remove Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis from office. And Kemp made clear that he was having none of this nonsense. Uh, Listen to this. There have been calls by one individual in the General Assembly and echoed outside of, the, of these walls by the former president for a special session that would ignore current Georgia law and directly interfere with the proceedings of a separate but equal branch of government. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission. And Kemp made clear also that what Republicans, including Donald Trump, were trying to do 
is nothing less than an effort to override Georgia's constitution, which, I mean, let's be honest, that's Donald Trump's goal all along. Regardless, in my mind, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution, regardless of who it helps or harms politically. Now, we talked a little about Kemp last night, and I want to be clear, this guy is no bright shining light of democracy. He gleefully supported and signed voter suppression laws that pulled polling places out of black districts and added them to white Republican districts. He restricted absentee voting. He restricted ballot drop boxes. He directly attacked Black-led souls to the polls campaigns, which organized Black voters in churches. But on this, Kemp is 100% right. The attacks on Fonnie Willis have always been baseless and motivated by the MAGA movement's belief that Donald Trump is above the law. And in a Republican Party that's as rotted as this one is with MAGA lunacy, it's kind of refreshing to hear at least one prominent Republican say, no, this is wrong. And it runs afoul of everything we stand for and our Constitution stands for. Now, none of that went over well with the MAGA faithful who called Kemp a traitor and demanded he be removed from office. But that's what happens when you challenge Donald Trump. Now, we've got a lot more to say on this and on everything else. We also have some DeSantis news I can't wait to get to. But it's already that time. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to chat with the always insightful David Rothkoff about all of this Republican madness and why, in spite of it all, America's actually doing better than you might think. You're listening to SiriusXM Progress. Stick around. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome. 
Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress and Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Max Burns sitting in for John this week and really just having the time of my life. And it's going to get even better because my first guest tonight, the guy I used to write with at the Daily Beast and one of the few commentators who really wants to educate and inform his audience instead of just riling them up. David Rothkopf has many honorifics. Among them, he's the CEO of the Rothkopf Group and host of Deep State Radio. He's also the author of a whole host of books. His latest is American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. That's out now at fine booksellers everywhere. David has a really thoughtful new piece out in the Daily Beast titled, America's in much better shape at home and abroad than you probably think. And that gets at a really interesting question of why, with historic unemployment lows, resurgent global alliances, and a huge record of wins, are the American people so down about the country? Now, David's going to help us answer that question right now. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's my pleasure. It's nice to talk to you. Now, you ask readers to look back at where we were on January 6th of 2021. And sometimes it's easy to forget that that was the first time in our national history where we failed to have a peaceful transfer of power. Now, how far have we come in the thousand days since then? Well, let's go back then and remember that we failed to have a peaceful transfer of power and Remember that we had a uh, corrupt president and our democracy was on the ropes, but that wasn't our only problem. We were in the middle of COVID epidemic. Um, uh, We were uh, losing many American lives, many unnecessarily, a month to month. Our economy and the global economy had taken a big hit. Our standing in the world had taken a big hit. because Trump was essentially, um, uh, you know, a Putin disciple, um, and because he was seen by the world for what he was, which was not a serious person, I could go on and on um, because there were a lot of ills within the country that had not been addressed yep. for a long time either. Um, but in the thousand days since, look at where we are, and I'll try to keep it brief, but. We're the fastest recovering nation in the G7. We have created more jobs in the past three years than ever in the first three years of an administration, credit to the Biden administration. Uh, Despite broken politics, uh, the, the Biden administration has put through the biggest infrastructure investment since the Eisenhower years, the biggest green uh, uh, tech and energy investment ever in the history of the United States. The American Rescue Plan lifted millions of people out of poverty, saved many, many children from actual starvation. Uh, they put together a response to COVID uh, that ended COVID and helped end it around the world. They stepped up when Russia went into Ukraine uh, on in February 2022 and led NATO. Uh, Now NATO is bigger than it ever was. The United States is thought of better. They also have built an alliance in the Asia Pacific region uh, to help counterbalance China. And one of the reasons they were able to do this was that Biden had the courage to end the uh, endless wars, the longest war in American history in Afghanistan. Um, uh, There are more diverse judges that have been appointed and approved than ever in American history. It's the most diverse administration than ever in American history. And quite apart from the accomplishments of the administration, um, 
uh, in the 20, uh, 20 election, Trump was re- rejected. In the 2022 election, uh, the extremists that Trump and the other MAGA folks uh, supported were rejected by the American people. In interim elections, particularly those since the Dobbs decision, even in red states, um, abortion rights, the rights of women to um, maintain their own bodily autonomy have been strongly supported. Uh, the fact that the MAGA right represents a fraction, a tiny fraction of the American people, and most of this other agenda that we've just been talking about is supported by 70, 80 percent of the American people, augurs extremely well for next year, even if Trump is the candidate. Independents are likely not to vote for him. Democrats certainly will not vote for him. And that could lead somebody, and you wouldn't want to be complacent about this, to be optimistic. And then, of course, finally, looks like Trump, looks like a bunch of people around Trump, are going to be held accountable. Um, And that's no small thing. There have been 1,100 people held accountable for January 6th. You have seven different trials, four criminal, three civil awaiting Donald Trump in the next year or two. Um, This could be a period where historians look back and say, hey, wait a minute. The United States, once again, as it did after the Civil War, as it did after two world wars, as it did after suffering the divisions of, of, of prior periods of racial disharmony or growing inequality, seems to be not only recovering from the threats it faced, but emerging stronger than ever. And that's really where the, the breakdown for me is that, that confuses me. You you write in the piece, the Biden recoveries included job growth that's broken records, the sound management of inflation, low unemployment, low energy costs, an active program of investing in the U.S. economy. And I see that. And we see Donald Trump being held accountable. We see the people going to jail for January 6th. Uh, why is that not done more to renew people's faith that the system can work? Because you see polls and people are still very pessimistic about just the core functions of our government. Well, you know, I, I think there's only three primary reasons that I can think of for this. Maybe you you can think of more. One of them is that a large portion of the media is lying about what's happening. Uh, the whole right-wing media ecosystem is is lying about what's important. And they're saying Hunter Biden is important. And they're saying Biden's not up to the job. And they're saying, uh, you know, uh, inflation is much higher than it really is. Um, and they're not reporting on what actually happened. I think there's another big chunk of the media that is has mistaken the obligation to be objective with false equivalencies um, between the two parties. And so they they tend to downplay achievements, be critical whenever they can um, in ways that validate the arguments of the right. And then I think there's a third uh, reason, which is that a chunk of American people just aren't paying attention. Uh, or they don't understand what's happening around them. And so if you combine ignorance, misunderstanding of journalistic responsibility to report the truth, and 
a group of people who are actively supporting lies, you end up with this kind of national misconception that we see. So what can the White House do to to engage those voters? I mean, we see when Joe Biden is out on the trail and barnstorming and meeting people face to face, he's still a dynamic campaigner and he sells the message. But it does feel like the, the party as a whole is missing messaging opportunities, either for fear of legitimizing Republicans on Hunter Biden by attacking it, or that they feel it's it's sort of self-evident in communities. Is there something the White House could be doing better to communicate this message? I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Um, uh, first of all, you know, there are a lot of people who go, well, you know, Joe Biden's not a great communicator. Um, and I'm like, well, okay. Um, I'm old enough to remember a few people who were thought of as great communicators, and they weren't very good presidents. Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. He was a lousy president. Uh, Barack Obama was a great communicator. He was an okay president domestically, not so good in terms of foreign policy. Donald Trump was on TV. He was the worst president in American history. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I, I, I necessarily hunger for a president who is a great communicator. Biden's getting the message out, but he's doing it the old fashioned way. He's governing and producing results and relying on the common sense of the American people, which, by the way, worked for him when he ran for president, worked yep. in the midterm election and has worked in the interim elections. Um, so, you know, I think run a campaign. Get your speakers out there. I think one of the things they're doing now, finally, that's a good thing, is letting Kamala Harris be Kamala Harris because she's yep. a huge asset. Um, and, um, and you know, I think, you know, there are other great spokespeople in the administration, Pete Buttigieg, Janet Yellen, Jennifer Granholm, uh, Raimondo, et cetera, et cetera. They're, you know, they're, they're terrific. Uh, so they can get out there. Um, but, you know, I, I would I would phrase the question differently, particularly for listeners of this show, which is not what should the White House be doing? It's what should you be doing? Because we live in an age where every single individual has a platform via social media to influence dozens or scores or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands Um or even millions of people simply by using the tools in front of them. So if you think the White House isn't out there doing it, you do it. You do it with your friends. You do it on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or uh, Twitter or whatever you want to call Twitter or threads or or in, you know any platform that is available to you. Uh, because we live in an age where more of the um, national dialogue is actually not dictated by the media, and it's not dictated by the people in power. It's dictated from the bottom up at the grassroots level. Yeah, I, that's a phenomenal point. And I mean, it certainly is has shown you the power of social media in engaging these issues on the right. There's no reason it can't be applied the other way. If you're just joining me, this is Tell Me Everything. My guest is the wonderful David Rothkoff. We're discussing his latest piece in The Daily Beast and a bunch more. And you mentioned earlier, and I want to make sure we get to it, the international aspect of all this. You note that under Joe Biden, we've rebuilt America's international reputation, its diplomatic capacities. I remember that flood of diplomats out of the State Department, the collapse in the Foreign Service under Trump. 
How did Biden bring us back from the brink so quickly? Well, there are a few reasons. And, you know, one of them sounds old school. I'm an old guy, so maybe that's why I sound old school. But Joe Biden had 50 years of foreign policy experience. The previous, you know, record holder in our lifetimes, everybody talks about is George H.W. Bush. When George H.W. Bush became president, he had 17 years via different jobs of being exposed at a high level to foreign policy. No wonder he did better than other people, right? Well, Joe Biden has been operating at the highest level in terms of foreign policy since he entered the Senate in the early 1970s. And therefore, he has more foreign policy experience than any president in history. Secondly, the team that he brought is an absolutely A-plus team. And as you know, what I, I write about most of the time is how the national security and foreign policy apparatus works. And one of the things that you know, is often overlooked, is that you need chemistry. You need people who trust each other. You need people who work well together. Uh, You need people who the president feels comfortable in empowering. And in Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, in uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, in Bill Burns at the CIA, in Avril Haines at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, in Lloyd Austin and the Defense Department, in the sub-cabinet. This is an administration that has the best, most cohesive, most aligned and in tune foreign policy team that I've ever seen. And all of them have a ton of experience. And Many of them have the benefit, and and again, you know, it's a little controversial, perhaps, for me to say this, of having been in the Obama administration, which, while well intentioned uh, and seeking to head in a good direction, actually stumbled on a lot of foreign policy issues, and they had the ability to learn what leadership really looks like, what risks we really need to be able to take, what counts, uh, and they've been much more assertive and effective. And I think one of those areas that really has caused a little heartburn for Democrats, at least, is China. There have been concerns on the left that Biden has, in a lot of ways, mimicked Trump's language on China and a sense that that the Biden-China policy isn't really slowing them down. But you write in the piece that you see things a little differently in China. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, several things. First, I was, you know, in the Clinton administration, which in my mind seems like yesterday, but to most of your listeners probably sounds like the Hoover administration, right? But, uh, you know, I was in the Clinton administration. We started to focus at that time uh, in the 90s on what we called big emerging markets. Later, they became known, uh, thanks to a guy, Goldman Sachs, as BRICS. The sense was old countries, Europe and us, um, you know, we were going to fade. And this next generation, China, India, Brazil, um, uh, you know, uh, the, Indonesia, Turkey, you know, we're, these countries were going to grow and step up and lead the way of the future. Well, it didn't happen that way. Russia, which is in the BRICS, it's, it was we, all, we always treated it kind of separately, but Russia has just seen half of its defense capability destroyed due to the yeah. hubris and 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 malevolence of its leader, and its economy has been destroyed. India is seen backsliding on democracy. People don't really feel comfortable investing there for for those reasons. Uh, uh, 
Uh, countries like Brazil, which just went through its own Trump experience with Bolsonaro, have yeah. struggled economically, one step forward, two steps back. And China, which was seen as kind of the leading light, seems to be heading into a period of uh, serious economic trouble um, uh, that uh, actually has its GDP at the moment falling relative to our GDP. Um, and, and none of that was expected. At the same time, NATO is stronger. We are stronger. We have more alliances. Our economy has recovered faster than others. We are now investing in the technologies of the future. We continue to have the advantage of the best universities in the world and a system um, that promotes innovation um, especially well and also allows companies to fail and rebuild better than any other a system in the world. And so they're faltering and we're doing better. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the Biden administration, particularly in the course of the past six months, has stepped away from the Trump policy. Secretary Ray Bondo was just there, had a productive trip. Secretary Yellen has been there. Uh, there have been four high-level trips. Secretary um, Blinken, of course, was there uh, in the course of the past several months. And we're trying to find common ground, even as we know there are real differences and even as we strengthen our defenses um, to protect against those. I think that's the right policy. Engage where you can um, and uh, be responsible in terms of um, the risks that are there uh, at the same time. And we've, we've seen China, as you mentioned, really starting to struggle. Factory activities now shrunk five months in a row. The housing market still remains very challenging for a lot of middle-class Chinese who are still struggling to get by. And Xi Jinping has, has been very clear in remarks that economic growth is a necessity, and not just growth, but growth at a steady clip to keep these things from getting into a restive state. I think Republicans tend to see Chinese bellicosity as the weakness of Joe Biden instead of as trying to distract from these situations. And I'm curious what you think about that and the effects of the CHIPS Act and how this this is one of the things I feel is very undercovered by the media, one of what is likely to be one of the most transformative pieces of economic legislation in a generation, this bringing the semiconductor industry back on shore that has really unnerved Chinese policymakers in a way we haven't seen in decades. Yeah, well, as 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 well it should. And 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 by the way, it's not just the Chips Act, which has us investing fifty billion dollars in making chips here in the United States. And uh, you know, between the Chips and Science Act, you know, investing more in R and D, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which has us investing a ton in green energy. Um, you've got the United States laying the groundwork to be more competitive and taking steps with regard to export controls and, and a whole host of other things to make sure that key technologies do not fall into the wrong hands in China, dual-use technologies. Um, and uh, that's important. The, the trick with the China relationship is that there's 70,000 U.S. businesses in China that China is our number three trading partner, that China is the number one trading partner of 180 countries around the world. So we don't want China to collapse. We don't want China to falter. It's not a zero-sum game like the Cold War was. We want them to grow 
but we don't want them to steal our IP. We don't want them to corner the market on next generation technologies that could be destructive. We want them to play by the rules. And so that involves um, engagement. Uh, and I think you've got a good balance finally being struck. And I think there was some hesitation and some divided views within the Biden administration on this. Uh, and there's also been candor. Secretary Raimondo in her trip earlier this week um, said to the Chinese, our investors are uncomfortable investing in China right now. And she listed the reasons. That's helpful also for the relationship, the government speaking out on behalf of um, all those Americans who uh, are, are actually taking steps to uh, that might at some point bring the countries closer together and certainly align our interests a little bit better. Uh, the Republicans, you know, it's a mystery to me. And you've studied this and 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 you 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 probably have a better idea than I do. To me, there's there's the Republicans stand for nothing in terms of sensible policies. Um, th they are, you know, against Joe Biden. They're against the war in Ukraine. They're against the policies of the Democrats. Um, they're against whatever choices are made, but they're not actually for anything constructive. Uh, uh, what they are for, which is not constructive, um, is reduction in the rights of women, reduction in the rights of people of color, reduction in the rights of the LGBTQ plus community, reduction in voting rights, and a, a reduction in democracy in the United States. And, you know, that's the most cynical political stance I think I've ever seen in the United States. And that's saying something. Because American politicians have always had the cynical among them, but we've really hit a nadir. Uh, and you know, the you know a Republican Party that has its front runner raising money um, by circulating pictures of his mugshot in the wake of his ninety-one felony counts that he's been charged with is the height of cynicism. It's saying, let's take the guy who attacked the Constitution and put him in charge of protecting it again. You know, Fox meet Henhouse. Yep. It's friggin' crazy. I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, Repu the, the entire Republican China policy is beat China. I mean, it is both domestically and internationally a po policies of national decline, of moral decline, of economic decline. David, it has been an absolute pleasure to finally sit down with you and talk shop about all this. In the in the minute or so we have left, let our audience know how they can find you and your work. Well, it's very nice for you to ask. Uh, I, I run something called the DSR Network. We do a lot of podcasts on issues like we've just been talking about, foreign policy, national security, intelligence, politics, health, science, uh, defense uh, stuff. We're growing super rapidly. This was our biggest month ever. We're about to hit a million downloads a month with our podcast. So you go to the DSRnetwork.com and you can download any of them. You can see me there. I write for the Daily Beast a couple times every week. I'm on uh, Twitter. I'll continue to call it that as at DJ Rothkopf. Um, uh, I'm on threads also. And, uh, you know, I have a book every year or two. So I had one last year that you talked about and I will have one in a year or two, a year or so. Um, so. There are a lot of ways to to find me, but 
I hope, you know, we can continue to talk. Maybe you can come visit one of our podcasts at some point. Absolutely. Would love to. And please keep, uh, you're keeping so busy, but keep up the amazing work. You're producing great stuff that is of great value to all of us. Well, you're doing the same. And this is a critical moment in the life of our country. And I go back to the point I made before. If you're not actively working to protect democracy, you're letting your family and future generations down. So it's time to step up now. There won't be another chance. That is the truth. That was my guest, David Rothkopf. Check out his work at The Daily Beast and absolutely follow him on Twitter. You will not regret it. When we get back, your calls at 866-977-4748. We got a lot of show left, so stick around. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Howdy, folks. You're listening to Tell Me Everything with John Fuglesang. I'm your guest host, Max Burns, sitting in for John. And if you're wondering why you're calling and nobody's picking up, it's because your guest host cannot read. Uh, the number is 866-997-4748. And with that note of apology, I want to jump right into a call. Let's chat with Dave in Washington about Trump and his assets. Dave, how are you? Yeah, good, Max. Look, I just wanted to say, um, I wanted to bring this up mainly because of your monologue and the fact that um, Trump really just gets on my nerves when he plays this um, card that he was too busy being president and averting a nuclear holocaust with North Korea to pay attention to his assets. It's so fake. I mean, really, his assets and his own personal gain is all he was paying attention to. Um, he presents this thing like, I decided to be um, buddies with Kim Jong-un of North Korea as some sort of big revelation. Like nobody had ever thought of it before. Okay. And it's completely fake and it's false. And the, um, even Linda Thomas Greenfield right now is talking about um, North Korea resupplying Russia in their efforts, you know, yep. to, to, to destroy the Ukraine. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because if she's talking about it openly, that means, Somebody's going to report on it, like Taiwan or Malaysia. Somebody in that area of the world is, is, is going to report on it because it's going to be obvious, right? And the thing is, is all that is thanks to Donald Trump. All these innocent people that are dying in this conflict, really all of it can trace back to Donald Trump and his really his greed, his personal greed when he was in the White House. And frankly, it, 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 it's, it's like when you mentioned Biggs saying, you know, he doesn't have hate in his heart and he's not a terrorist. He absolutely is a terrorist because he and he does have hate in his heart. And, and it reminds me of this. You know, I've had this obsession with Abraham Lincoln and Alexander H. Stevens of the Confederacy and their relationship. And, and my personal take on it is, is sometimes as an ad with an adversary like Lincoln and Stevens, you need a true believer. I mean, you don't like them, 
obviously they're your adversary, but you need one that's that's authentic in their beliefs. And Alexander H. Stevens, you know, he gave the cornerstone speech for the Confederacy. And I think Abraham Lincoln identified him as a true believer. And so, like, when when Alexander H. Stevens talked about surrender, I think um, Lincoln could believe it. It wasn't a trick, you know? And it's like a bully, right? A bully um, always has toadies around him. It doesn't do any good to go to the toadies. If you want to stop the bully, you got to go directly to the bully. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. There are many true believers on the MAGA side. And and the problem is there are no honest collaborators. At least they haven't been beaten back to a point where they're ready to collaborate. And to your point earlier on the assets, I did think it was funny that Donald Trump said under oath in a court filing that he couldn't properly file his assets because he was averting nuclear war. But this this is the New York Attorney General talking about assets from 2011. So I don't know if if Trump thought that he was averting nuclear war five years before he was president, but it it certainly shows you if these are the statements he's making under oath, these trials are going to be wild. No, and thank you for bringing that up. I just uh, it's the sanctimonious bullshit, excuse my language, that gets on my nerves with Trump and MAGA. And it's all this fake. It's because it's not my opinion. One minute they're bragging about how they game the whole system. And, 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 you know, and 401ks and, you know, they get, you know, everything went up and they gained the system. And then the next minute they're, they're playing like, you know, they're the saviors of, of humanity. And it's really a hypocrisy that I find, um, you know, really distasteful. No, it, it absolutely is. It's hypocrisy all the way down. I mean, as Professor Rothkopf said, these people stand for nothing. They believe in nothing. It's a cynical anti-democratic party that only seems unified in the idea that democracy needs to go. And the the really scary thing is if they win and once they do that, what happens next? We've seen from these kind of anti-democratic revolutions in the past, the answer is always they turn on each other and then there is mass violence. And I, I just hope the American people see that and the Democrats make that case because, yeah, to your point, I mean, it is it is an existential threat to democracy. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It just it, it's just going to degenerate and get worse. I mean, uh, last time he was c- completely focused on his own gain. Uh, if he gets another bite at the apple, he's going to. They're they're all going to be focused on um, just staying in there permanently and in perpetual gain. <laughs> and they're, they're that is that is the truth. Eliminate. There won't be an apple left, and there won't be any of us left either. I appreciate your call. We got to jump to a quick break. When we get back, we're going to come back to more of your calls. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Stick around. Welcome back, folks. Thank you so much for sticking with me and tell me everything as we coast into 10 p.m. here on the East Coast. I'm Max Burns. I'm honored to be your guest host this week as the great Mr. Fugel sang, get some rest and relaxation. Now, I want to jump right back into calls. Uh, I want to chat here with Bill in Orlando on Ron DeSantis, because Florida's had an eventful couple days here. Bill, how are you? Hey, good evening, Max. Big fan. It's nice to talk to you. Absolutely, man. So before I get to to Governor DeGeneres, let me tell you a quick story. I left for Hawaii in month, August 1st, and I talked to John before, and I think it was you, but who, who mentioned it after I went to Hawaii to donate blood, my 150th gallon. 
And yep. so I remember talking to John and then you, you, you were the next guest and uh, you had mentioned that I think there was a heat wave or, or was the smoke in, in New York city there. And uh, you had mentioned you, you needed my blood. So that was me. So that I, that's, this is the one you're talking to. I've been back well, from Hawaii for a couple again. of weeks. Yeah. So I, I will be, I didn't get, unfortunately in Hawaii, I didn't get to, I got to, well, I have unofficially got to my 150th gallon, but two days before Lanai burned down and, and, you know, and, and the, the horrible, uh, experience there, my, I have friends there, my friends there who have cousins on, on Maui and, and the whole thing. I was on Oahu at the time. So, but that was my story. So you know, I get that out of the way, but that was, that's me. But well, it's when great it comes to talk to, with you again. Well, yeah, I think we may have talked before. I don't know. But when it comes to Governor Degenerate, you know, this guy really annoys the shit out of me. He stay, he's been running around here now. There's billions of dollars coming to Florida, right? You know, not just, not just with Hurricane, uh, the last hurricane, uh, Idalia. But he's been siphoning off here. For, he's been running around for a couple of years, and all the Republicans are doing it, these Congress people and all that with with the CARES Act and all this. But DeSantis is really uh, sleazy because he's been – he kept uh, uh, COVID fund money, and I read something about it a while back. You can probably fact-check this. He, he's been using COVID money as uh, – uh, you know, the Florida budget's $115 billion this year. One third of it is Joe Biden's money. I keep saying it's Joe Biden. It's federal dollars, right? That keep propping up all these tax cuts he keeps giving to the to the corporations and the uh, the multi billionaires and millionaires who live here, right? And you know that is the problem I have. It it, it, it the tax cuts and and, and it, just along with the tax cuts. The other thing is now that the storm's gone through. Who's going to rebuild these homes? You know, we can get on immigration here quick, too. You know, immigration and refugees. You know, who's going to rebuild these homes? Speaking, you know, I feel for I feel for the people whose homes have been destroyed. And, you know, I really I, I, I and even the rich people, but they can take care of themselves. I, I, I always stand up for the people who are going to have trouble rebuilding and all that. I look up through South Carolina and, 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 you know, so what do you think? I'm going on and on. What do you think? I think we saw what Ron DeSantis thinks about this in that in the remarks he gave as the hurricane was passing through. He didn't talk about humanitarian relief or making sure people were OK. He talked about shooting looters. I mean, even when there's a national crisis and there's an emergency in his state, Ron DeSantis cannot stop with this soulless, vindictive campaigning. And the, the end result is he seemed more concerned about protecting his wealthy donors stuff than making sure some of these people, 300,000 without power, are actually okay. I mean, that gives you a great sense of how he'd respond if there was a national crisis, and that should terrify people. Well, he actually used the term knock on wood, remember that, a month ago, before yeah. the storm hit. You know, knock on wood, Governor, knock on wood. You know, he's he's, he's, he's an embarrassment and, a, and an insult to the state of Florida. Uh, 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 hopefully America will wake up because uh, it's time this this he he's he he is dangerous he's a dangerous human being i don't know 
where his anger, he always seems to be anger. He, he is, he's the charisma of a dead, dead fucking cockroach, as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing there within him, within, whatever. I always think back to where his, his I think it's his great-grandmother came off the boat, and she was very pregnant. I forgot her name now. And you look at his lineage, and, you know, she, and they took her right in, and she and and she gave birth to whoever it was. And now to look at the look at what she's look at look at what she's left is with the demon seed or whatever you want to call him, because he is he's evil, you know, really. The only thing I can think is if you had to wake up every day and be Ron DeSantis, you would probably be pretty angry too. Bill, I really appreciate exactly. your call. I want to make sure we jump to to the rest here. I and we have one that I missed last night who came in right at the end. I felt terrible I couldn't get to him. Stephen in Kentucky. You have always interesting thoughts. What's on your mind tonight? Hi, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I'm doing all right, thank you. Yes, last night I uh, watched the moon. I did. I was outside, although I, w- I figured that it would be more blue. I did. You know, they kept showing it on the internet that it would be more blue. <laughs> so I, I guess I just assumed that uh, the, the hue would be a little bit more blue <laughs> last night. But it was quite inspirational, though I have to say that. Um, I would uh, concur with the last caller when it comes to Ron DeSantis. You know, he, um, remind. I think he's living in the wrong era. He reminds me of Richard Nixon a little bit with, uh, during the whole uh, Alger Hiss case, and we were mentioning uh, McCarthy the other evening. I think he would have fit right in with Joseph McCarthy. They seem to be cut from the same cloth, same ruthless yep. cloth. I just, I really think it's fascinating that, and it's quite telling, that you see all this global warming stuff going on right now, particularly in Florida with uh, Idelia, I believe is the name of the uh, hurricane. And yet, Governor DeSantis himself, all the problems they have down there banning Shakespeare and, you know, trying to uh, censor um, ethnic studies and trying to, uh, you know, start wars with Disney. And, you know, uh, he has such a busy day. And uh, now all of a sudden he wants to uh, cut back on FEMA aid. You know, he does when the federal government's trying to help them out through this uh, current administration, the Biden administration. And it just demonstrates to me how out of touch, and this goes beyond reality, it goes into lunacy is what it goes into. These people are, I, I heard somebody mention anti-establishment. Oh, bullshit. These people are anti-establishment. They're sociopaths is what they are. They're misanthropes. They're nihilists. They talk, they've been talking for years about doing away with the federal government. Then my question yep. is, if they hate the goddamn government so much, why are they running for these positions for the government? It makes no sense. And it's a it's that, it's like a one-legged man in a jackass kicking contest. That's exactly what this is all about. And you know that has always and, been the challenge, though, is why why run for something you hate? I always say these people say they're so anti-establishment. Well, your house is an establishment, and when your house is blown away in a hurricane, you don't care about the right-wing talking points. You just want FEMA to come and help you and get you some food and get you some water and get you some medicine. These anti-establishment people want to destroy things and they've tricked their voters into thinking that they're not going to destroy the things they value. It's ludicrous. 
Well, the problem is, you know, there's a couple of things here. You know, I'm very wary of, I, I have to say this. Now, maybe I'll get bricked over the coals for saying this, because I am flirting with an idea of running against my incumbent congressman here. And he's a Democrat, and I happen to be a Democrat, too. I think we need some backbone. That's why I'm flirting with the run. Now, I have to say, though, I would not be wearing a flag lapel on my jacket. You see, so many of these people do that. I don't think you have to wrap yourself in a flag to prove you're patriotic. Your actions prove whether you're patriotic. You want to prove you're patriotic? Yep. Let's pass an anti-domestic terrorism law that, that uh, as I said the other night, that gives people 46 years in prison instead of 46 months in prison for the terrorist attack that happened on January 6th. You know, the, it, it, Kennedy had it right when he used to talk about this all the time. Jackie Kennedy was once asked in 1960 where they, wanted, where they were going to hold the Democratic National Convention, and she looked at him and said, Acapulco, you know. And so, I mean, the fact is, all these individuals would talk, I guess it's because they want to connect with the common person. But to me, I think it's quite insulting because we have so many of these politicians that want to talk about aspiring to the middle class. Why not aspire to the upper class, mind, body, and soul? That's what we should be doing. These politicians are sitting there getting rich off of their positions. Well, hell, if that's the case, let's just level with people. Let's really uh, rise the stakes, and let's really lift people up. I'm not just talking about financially, because that's where Trump has it wrong. He doesn't understand. To be rich, you have to be rich in all aspects of life, financially included. But at the same time, a lot of these individuals won't ever talk like that. They won't. I'm as American as caviar. I'm not as American. I, I consider myself to be lobster bisque, not clam chowder, for heaven's sake. <laughs> and that's what people should be aspiring to do. We need our uh, – We need our. and another thing we need, too, if I could, we also need to have leadership that encourages us to, to encourage us to um, live up to our romantic ideals. This this country was founded on dreams. You have to make. I the love this campaign. Reality. You have to. I'll love, donate to, to this. Oh, honey, I would love that. As a matter of fact, I, it's interesting. Uh, the incumbent congressman, and I love him as a person, but he doesn't understand that personnel is policy. Your personnel can make you or break you. He doesn't understand. He has 12 years' experience. I don't have any experience, and yet I understand that. And yet I'm being told that I'm a hayseed. Oh, I don't think so. If Tallulah Bankhead was the toast of Broadway, let me tell you something. I'm no hayseed at all. And people can look, and uh, I'm sure they'd love to see my Facebook page. They can see I'm quite sophisticated for my age, and I have a lot of... um, understanding of the human condition in the world around me. And also, I'd like to think, too, I, I, don't, I can't speak as someone, of, a person of color or a woman or what have you, but I can speak from my own unique perspective of having been discriminated against being a feminine male and having, I've had my sexuality questioned since I was 12 years old. 
And so, and I was harassed. Back then, it would have been called sexual harassment. It would have. So I understand something about discrimination, I do, and how imperative it is to have strong civil rights laws on the books. And I'm not just talking about the Civil Rights Act of 64. What Johnson and Kennedy and Johnson had good ideas, but the problem is, is that it didn't go far enough. We need public and private protections under that Civil Rights Act. So many people have been. I, I agree with you, Stephen. And I hope yeah. you, I genuinely I hope you run. I mean, I let me know and I will come down there and knock doors for you. I've got to jump off. The, but I do thank you for your call. I am 100 percent behind this campaign. The only problem is Stephen may be a little too self-aware for Congress, but we could use a little of that. Now, I want to tell you something that that's really upset me here. According to a new report by CNN that's out today, Alabama's Republican attorney general said in a court filing that he's claiming the right to prosecute anyone who helps make travel arrangements for women leaving the state for abortions, even if they're going to a state where abortion is legal. Now, Attorney General Steve Marshall claimed that transporting a woman out of the state to get an abortion would be considered a criminal conspiracy under Alabama law, which would put women at risk of serious criminal charges, even jail time. Now, in practice, what that does is turn Alabama's state anti-abortion laws into a nationwide ban for everyone who lives outside Alabama. Because if you can be prosecuted for leaving the state to get an abortion where it's legal, guess what? You can't get an abortion. And let's call that what it is. It's a direct attack on the equal citizenship of women. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but the free movement of a person across state lines was one of the big issues that mobilized our founding fathers. They believed deeply that a free society depended on the right to travel freely without needing to have your papers checked at the border by some idiot attorney general with an agenda. Now, Alabama's flipped that logic on its head and essentially created a prison for women. And of course, this is entirely illegal or rather, you know, it should be. But with the Supreme Court, we have who knows this new proposal might remind you of something else. The fugitive slave laws. And that's because it does the exact same thing, essentially guaranteeing that the long arm of Alabama law follows women out of the state and then hits them with staggering criminal punishments the minute they get home. Now, think about what that means, because if Alabama Republicans can say you as a woman aren't allowed to leave the state to get an abortion, what other things are they going to find objectionable? If I travel from Alabama to New York and smoke some weed while I'm in Times Square, is Alabama going to charge me for something that's totally legal in New York? If I have a kid who wants gender affirming care and we choose to go to Michigan for it, will I have my kid taken away for violating Alabama laws against trans care? The point here is and has always been the fear. This is meant to terrify people into abandoning women and to terrify women into not even trying to stand up for their reproductive rights, their travel rights, their civil rights. And get this. According to the attorney general, I'm not kidding. If you're a woman who goes out of the state to get an abortion and you decide, hey, I don't think I want to do this. I want to keep the baby. Well, guess what? You can still be charged with a crime. Here's what the AG says in the filing. The conspiracy is what is being punished, even if the final conduct never occurs. The conduct is Alabama based and is within Alabama's power to prohibit. Now, if you so much as look up an out-of-state abortion clinic with the intent to go there, or you rent a car with the plan to go get an abortion, 
because you did that in Alabama, the attorney general now says the state has the right to put you in prison. This is absolute insanity. And the fact that the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division hasn't already stepped in is wildly concerning. This is the kind of thing that calls for civil disobedience. This is where pro-abortion, pro-women's rights states across the country need to get together. They need to fund and facilitate the travel of women to their states to get abortions and then fund the legal defenses of any women who end up in trouble. Because I'll tell you what, folks, if we don't stand up for this now, it's going to spread like wildfire. And pretty soon you're going to have red states working together to capture and prosecute women that they say left the state to get abortions. That is exactly where it's headed. And the Republicans haven't even been quiet about it. I mean, let's get real here. If they're confident enough to put it in a legal filing and sign their name to it, you can bet they are confident enough to enforce it. Eyes open, folks, because this is going to get real bad real fast unless we stop it right now. Now, I want to get one more call in. Uh, let's talk to Sean in California, who has some thoughts for Joe Biden's 24 campaign. Sean, how are well, you? Well, you know, Brother Burns, I got to tell you about Alabama and all that kind of stuff is the fact that, you know, if we don't win elections, right, they push the limit. They're going to go all the way to the end to mess up women's privacy rights and everything else. But what yep. I did want to say about uh, Joe Biden, because everyone's so worried about the approval rating, which I'm not sure how accurate nowadays with kids don't even, you know, answer a phone and all that. I, I don't know. But what I would say is this. Imagine people. Let's let's imagine it because uh, I'm not big on national ads. I'd rather have it be on media. But you need to go viral. So dark yep. Brandon. Dark Brandon, brother, and he's sitting there in his drop-top Corvette, sunglasses, right, with a cutaway picture of sloppy Trump in a freaking golf cart, you know, grifting and mooching off the American people, all right? And then at the very end, you know, you can say, you know, who's ready to lead this country? I, I, I'm telling you. You've got to be cool in the school nowadays with, with this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that would be my ideal thing to do, but I'm telling you that's one way to do it. And the other thing is to keep fighting all the damn time because you just had the most amazing um, things. And, and in court, I want the opening statement to be, you know, hey, since he tried a coup, and a grift, you must convict. I think we're going to see it, man. I think we're going to see more. We saw some dark Brandon merch in the 22 campaign and people loved it. I think it's the way to go. I mean, Joe Biden yeah. has a record. He's He's got the car. We don't even need to get him the car. I mean, he's already got all the material. <laughs> we just need the confidence to do it. But I think I genuinely think it was such a hit that it's it's got to come back out. I mean, dark Brandon was one of the best gifts the Republican Party ever gave us. And I thank them every day for making Joe Biden cool. Let's do it. And, and this is where we lack. Everyone talks about branding, positioning, having the, the best ads, doing whatever we need to do. But I'll tell you what, uh, Joe Biden is fit. And, and, and Dino Badala made me cry laughing so hard. Let's have a bike ride race 
you know, Joe Biden versus Donald bin Laden. We will solve the debt in our country with a pay-per-view on that one. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of thinking we need to have because people, this is what it is. I'm older. I'm 56. But I'll tell you what, let's make things go viral because that's how it works nowadays. I agree with you. I mean, I think it's a great idea. And thank thank you for at least lowering my blood pressure a little bit after that outrage in Alabama. Love you, brother. I thank you so much for the call. I'm Mac Burns, and you're listening to SiriusXM Progress. 